You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Matt asked me what I'd like to speak on, and I said, well, what's everybody else speaking on? And uh, so I, I saw the list, and I thought, these are great. Um, and I would have liked to have taught on a number of the things that the other guys were already teaching on. Uh, but then I realized, you know, let's, let's just talk about the worship leader in Jesus Christ, um, which, which is a part of what everybody else is doing, but I think it's helpful if we, if we focus in on it and, and uh, really, really drill down into that specific topic. Um, I've been leading worship and song since the uh, mid-70s, so that's 37 years, so I guess that's longer than some of you have been alive. And uh, I just want to say, there's no, like, um, there are no secrets to it. Um, There's, you know, as you get older, this is probably true of almost every area, as you get older, you realize how little you know, especially in the area of parenting. Um, But in worship leading as well, you, you realize you don't know as much as you used to think you knew. And, and God's pleased with that because he gives grace to the humble. He doesn't, give, he doesn't give grace to those who are wise in their own eyes who think they already have it all together. So I'm a fellow journeyer um, wanting to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And I know that's why you're here. So let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us already uh, in this conference, just how you have spoken to our hearts. I know just as reading some of the tweets from, from the messages, I was so encouraged to, to hear what was being shared here. We pray that you would use not only this uh, workshop, but the entire conference to equip us to be more effective in serving your church, serving your people, serving those for whom Jesus came to purchase with his own blood. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes. I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly and that we would leave here more amazed by our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In our songs and prayers, you may have noticed this, we can be uh, kind of vague or unaware of, of who we're addressing. And so uh, we pray prayers like this, well... Father, thank you so much, Jesus, that we're here today, Father God, and we just, Lord, want to thank you, God, that you're just such an awesome God, Lord, and we thank you, Jesus, that uh, you, you've come and you're here with us, and you know, if, you're Trini- if you studied the Trinity lately, you add the Spirit, and Spirit, we thank you, too, feeling like he's left out or something. We thank you, too, for being here, and, and I've heard this, too. You know, Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for dying for us, and, and I'm going, no, he didn't die. You know, it, we, we just... We, it was Jesus who died. <laughs> Sometimes we get stuck on a certain person of the Trinity, like in the 70s, it was Jesus. We only prayed to Jesus. We only sang about Jesus. If you're in a highly Pentecostal church, you only, uh, everything's through the Spirit. It's only the Spirit who's, who's there. And if you're more Reformed, it's usually, oh, great God, or Father, or something like that. <laughs> now, what we want to realize is that, that God is triune. We're Christians. We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're not Muslims. We're not Hindians, and, and unfortunately, 
uh, sometimes uh, uh, a Muslim could walk into a church and sing the songs and not be troubled by it because we, we leave out the centrality of Jesus Christ. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses, we're not Mormons. We worship all three persons of the Trinity as God. But there's a specificity in their roles and their relationships. We can't simply interchange the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit, typically, in our songs or in our prayers, or necessarily say the same things to each one. The Father didn't die for us. The Spirit didn't send Jesus. There's a verse in Ephesians that, that clarifies the relationship in one, in one way. It says, Ephesians 2.18, for through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's a Trinitarian verse. Through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. We don't come through the Father to Jesus. We don't come through Jesus to the Spirit. But what we find in Scripture is that the Spirit has been sent to exalt Jesus for the glory of the Father. And both the Father and the Son, and the Spirit rather, want to draw our attention to the Son. So we read in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, I'm going to be using, skipping all over in, in Scripture. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There you see it. God the Father getting the glory while Jesus is being exalted, through Jesus being exalted. So while our worship ultimately redounds to the glory of God the Father, at the heart of biblical worship is Jesus Christ. At the heart of Christian worship is Jesus Christ. The Father is delighted when we honor his Son. So we see on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. When Jesus was baptized, this is my Son in whom I delight. The Spirit came specifically to glorify the Son. We read in John 16, Jesus says, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and declare it to you. So the Father and the Spirit both want to see us glory in Jesus Christ. And what I want to do in the short time we have together is talk about three specific ways or reasons why Jesus is the heart of biblical worship. First, Jesus is the leader of our worship. Now, Ron Mann's doing a workshop right now, which he's going to do a much more detailed and probably better job of explaining this than I will right now. In fact, I was looking at his notes earlier today, saying, boy, I'm glad he did this work. Hebrews 2, 10 through 12 says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and, he, and he's quoting Psalm 22 here, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's Jesus talking. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus both communicates God's words to us and our words to God as we gather. I will tell of your name to my brothers. That occurs primarily through preaching and teaching, but it also occurs when we sing to one another. We're teaching and admonishing one another, it says in Colossians 3.16. So Jesus is doing that. But also, it says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus sings for us, with us, and through us. Because he's still a man. He's the glorified Son of God, but He is still a man. So in His humanity, He joins with us and leads us in the song of praise to the Father. So here's a quote from Ron. Jesus is not content to receive worship at the Father's right hand from those whom He has graciously redeemed. Rather, He insists on standing with His brothers and sisters And not just joining in, but actually leading the chorus of grateful response to the Father for His grace. So when we gather, Jesus is the worship leader. As we approach the Father, Jesus is the worship leader. Our worship is made possible by Jesus This is why he must be the worship leader. Our worship is made possible by Jesus. The separation of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament from the rest of the tabernacle and the temple makes it clear that we can't approach God anytime we feel like it, any way we want. Nadab and Abihu learned that the hard way. Here, let's let's, let's do some fire this way. Oh, no. Dead. You know, I mean, that's, that's meant to teach us something. That's not just a story in the Old Testament that we look at and go, wow, I'm glad it's not then. I'm glad we're not, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad it's now and not then. It's to teach us that, that we need God's invitation to worship Him. We need a way to get into the presence of God. And Jesus is that way. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. I remember hearing a message on this while I was jogging years ago when I used to jog. And it, it, the Spirit of God bringing home to me in full force what it meant that Jesus has brought us into the presence of God. Listen, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Remember, it was the curtain that was torn when Jesus died. That was his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do we get into God's presence? 
through Jesus. He's the way we come into the presence of this consuming fire without being consumed. In Jesus. So our worship is made possible by Jesus. Our worship is made acceptable by Jesus. This is another reason why Jesus is our worship leader. He's the leader of our worship. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not our offerings, our perfect offerings that make our worship acceptable to God. It's the perfect Christ. It's not the, well, Harold Best said it like this, in Music Through the Eyes of Faith, which is the best book I've read on the theology of music and how it works in the church. He said, all our offerings of worship are at once humbled and exalted by the powerful saving work of Christ. All our offerings of worship are at once humbled and exalted by the powerful saving work of Christ. They're humbled because they wouldn't be accepted apart from Christ. They're exalted, our songs, our, our, our actions, our words, they're exalted because when they're offered through Christ, God receives them as though Christ did them himself. It's amazing, it's amazing. So our worship is made possible, our worship is made acceptable, and our worship is made one by Jesus. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Which means we are a spiritual house, not a bunch of random scattered bricks. How is that possible? Because Jesus is our worship leader. Do you ever stand in front of a group of people and think they're so distinct, they're so separated, they're not, they're, they're not getting along, all those things. They're one in Jesus. If they're believers, they are one in Jesus. So we want to direct their attention to the fact that Jesus is the worship leader. Jesus is the one who brought us here. Jesus is the one who makes this possible. We're united through our common leader, not our common musical preferences. And we want to make sure our people understand that. Because it's easy to get locked into a certain musical style and think, boy, we are really one in the Spirit, one in the Lord. No, you just all like the same 4-4 drumbeat. I mean, that's, and the same guitar riffs. That's what you like. And that is not the unity that Jesus came to bring us. Because what churches do sometimes is they start having different meetings for different musical preferences, which in the short term may produce some fruit, but in the long term undermines the gospel. 
which I'm gonna, am I gonna talk about that? Yeah, I'm gonna talk about that tomorrow morning. So here's some implications that Jesus is the leader of our worship. We are utterly dependent on God to approach God. We are utterly dependent on God to approach God. We need to be aware of that. It should make us humble. It should make us amazed. We will never lead anyone into God's presence. Only Jesus can do that. I mean, I appreciate it when someone comes up and says, boy, you really led us into the throne, throne room. You know, you really led us into God's presence. And I know what they're trying to say. They're, they're trying to say that as we sang, I became more aware that God was with us and experienced his love, experienced his grace, and, and I appreciate that. But I just wouldn't say it that way. I cannot lead anyone into God's presence. Only Jesus can do that. Gratefulness, here's another implication, gratefulness rather than anxiety should predominate our thoughts as we prepare to lead. Gratefulness rather than anxiety should predominate our thoughts as we prepare to lead. That can be life transforming if you get this. I talked with a a well-known worship leader one time who said he struggled each time he thought about leading because he wondered if it, if it was going to happen, if, if, people were, if they were going to get it, if they were going to experience God. If That's a burden that we don't have to live under. Jesus has brought us into the presence of God. Through his atoning, substitutionary death, we are now called to enjoy the benefits of it. What a privilege to be able to stand up in front of people and say, you know what, I can't lead you into God's presence, but Jesus can. In fact, he already has. And it doesn't matter what you did this morning, what you did yesterday, what you did last week. Sometimes people ask, well, how do you lead worship? Like, you know, if you, if like on the way in, to, to the meeting, you know, you had an argument with your wife and, you know, you were yelling at the kids and, like, you're just, you know. I'm thinking, well, what do you think we're standing up telling people? That we have a flawless life? Listen to me because I'm perfect in every way. I never raise my voice towards my children and I love my wife passionately all the time. Is that what we're saying? Is that what we want people to see? I do love my wife passionately all the time, but that's not, that's not what I'm here to say. That's not why I lead people. What we want to say to them is, we have a great Savior. And what better opportunity to live that out, to flesh that out, when you've just had an argument with your wife and you're standing in front of people and you're saying, I'm amazed that in God's eyes, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ and he accepts my songs this morning. I'm glad that Jesus is the worship leader and not me. So as I'm preparing, I don't have to be struggling with, oh, are these the right songs? Oh, is, this, is the arrangement good enough? Or, or all the things that I might be struggling with. I mean, those are important things, but what I know is that Jesus is my worship leader. And I'm trusting in him to do what only he can do. And, and it's a real joy then just to do it. 
music, here's another uh, implication. Our worship isn't better or more pleasing to God because we hit all the right notes. I mean, people appreciate it. But, but it's not more pleasing to God. I mean, sometimes when I'm leading from the piano, I, uh, it, you know, it's like one of the, I, this happened, I was just at a conference, and um, it's just real stark, and nothing else is playing. It's just, you know, like, it's just this horrible note. And, but, but listen, when I'm playing normally, I mean, I'm hitting hundreds of wrong notes that nobody's hearing. Um, and, and if I thought that my, the acceptability of my offering was dependent on, on how many notes I get right, I'd feel I would be bound up. But that's not, that's not what worshiping God's about. Now, nothing, I mean, let's, let's commend skill and let's commend practice and let's commend trying to play the right notes and rehearsals. All those things are good and right and necessary. But in the end, that's not what makes our worship acceptable. Final implication, music as a unifier is a poor substitute for Jesus as a unifier. Music as a unifier is a poor substitute for Jesus as a unifier. Okay, so Jesus is the leader of our worship. Second, Jesus is the content of our worship. Philippians 3.3 tells us that we are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what we're here to do. When we gather, we're here to glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul, Paul describes conversion and, and what it is that actually happens, what, what the goal of our conversion is. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. Why? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been saved to do. We've been saved to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now where do we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Well, in his word. And the word tells us about the person and the works of Jesus. Now I wanna slow down here just for a moment because I don't think we spend enough time on this. You ever consider the person of Jesus? That's, we're going to get to his works in just a second. But do you ever think about who Jesus is? Like just spend time thinking about him? Just him. Before he does anything. Like, like staring at a, a piece of art. You know, that, that piece of art's not doing anything. You're just, you're just looking at it. Here's some, here's some phrases that describe who Jesus is is. Remember, Jesus was a man who walked this earth. Jesus is a man who is now seated at the right hand of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. You think of the glory of God and when it shines out, what does that look like? It looks like Jesus. That's what it looks like. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. It's from Hebrews 1. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. What, what's, what does God look like? What is God like? He's like Jesus. Exactly. He's the image of the invisible God. I can't see him. I can't see God. Where is he? I don't know what he's like. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we start to, to realize this, the Gospels get a lot more interesting. We are seeing God revealed in the flesh. He's superior to angels. Angels are pretty impressive beings. You know, in, in Scripture, when, when people encounter angels, they fall down. Jesus is superior to them. He, he's better, he's greater, he's more glorious. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the heir of all things. All things belong to him. He existed before all things. He's the head of the church. He's fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is infinitely glorious to behold. It's like, it's like a diamond that, that refracts a new shaft of light every, every time you turn it. Let's say we had a diamond that was this big. And we held it here and just turned it a little bit. And we see a whole new shafts of light. Well, that might be what heaven's going to be like. You know, we, we look at Jesus for a hundred years and we're just like amazed. And then he turns a little bit. Oh, whoa! I never saw that! Amazing! You know, because we will be, we will, we will see him as he really is. So that's just his person. We could spend the whole time talking about that. How about his works? The works of Jesus. Well, he created everything. He created all things. Through him, all things were created. And by the way, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Upholds everything. Everything's sustained by Jesus. The reason everything's not blowing up right now is because Jesus holds it together. He took on flesh. Jesus the Son of God being adored by countless beings at a moment in time was conceived in the womb of a woman that he had created. And he entered into the world through her birth canal into a filthy environment. That's what Jesus did. That's one of the things he did. He obeyed his father perfectly. Never lied, never stole, never was hypocritical, never got angry unrighteously, never had a lustful thought that he entertained. I don't know, that's a question. I don't know if Jesus ever had a lustful thought. He couldn't have had one that he entertained. He lived in perfect obedience to his Father. He made purification for sins. He became sin for us. See, we read that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we just kind of gloss over it. 
Well, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can we back up just a moment and, and talk about who it was who became sin? It's Jesus who existed in pre-incarnate glory with his Father. That's the one who became sin for us, who absorbed God's wrath in our place for us, who rose from the dead, who ascended to his Father's right hand, who is now interceding for his people and is one day coming back to vanquish death to mete out justice and to live with his bride forever. That's Jesus, and that's who we gather to worship. He's the content of our worship. And the center of all his works is his death on the cross where he became sin, endured God's wrath, and ransomed a people for his Father's glory. That is the heart of the gospel. So that's why Paul says, in Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except in not the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Revelations 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And with your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So here's some implications. I wish I could spend so much more time on these things. We need to write, find, and sing more songs that spell out who Jesus is and what he's done. Songs like, in Christ alone. There's a reason that song is sung around the world. Now, a lot of songs are sung around the world that I'm not sure need to be sung around the world, but there's a reason that one's sung around the world. It's because it tells us who Jesus is and what he's done. Glorious Day by uh, Michael and other guys. It is finished, Matt Papa. The perfect wisdom of our God. That's uh, a Keith Getty, Stuart Town song on the Getty's new album. Other, other songs like that, there, there are plenty more. They don't have to give an exhaustive um, description of who Jesus is and what he's done, but, but Jesus should be bigger in our minds and hearts after we meet to sing his praise. He should be more glorious after we have met. That's another implication. We need to help our people move beyond catchphrases and Christianese to think deeply about the glory of Christ. And that begins with us doing it ourselves. We need to take time. I think it was John Flavel who wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. Uh, some of the Puritans have written books. Find those books that help you explore the riches of Jesus so that what comes out of you when you lead is, I want people to know him better. I want people to love him more. This is what Sinclair Ferguson said. The evangelical orientation is inward and subject subjective. We're far better at looking inward than we are at looking outward, which is why we have so many songs about, I love you, I want this, I'm going to do this, I promise this, because it's easier. It's easier to sing those songs. It's much harder to look outward 
So he says we need to expend our energies admiring, exploring, expositing, and extolling Jesus Christ. Here's an example. If I say to you, I've been married 36 years. My wife, she's amazing. She's incredible. I love her so much. She is awesome. She's like unbelievable. She is like the cat's meow. Do you use that phrase? She is like amazing. I mean, I can't tell you how much I love her. She is like, it's just, I it just don't even have the words to describe it. What do you know about my wife? Nothing. And how many times are we singing songs that resemble that? We need doctrinal fuel for our emotional fire. Emotional fire is great, but if all I ever did with my wife was say, I love you, I love you, no really, I love you, you're amazing, you're, but never told her why, eventually it would ring shallow. And when we're together, guess what? The same thing happens. We're passionate, we're pouring out our hearts, but no one's seeing Jesus more clearly. It's why the hymns persist. It's why the church will always need hymns. It's not the only thing they need. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But we'll always need hymns. Okay, last point. Jesus is the passion of our worship. Jesus is the leader of our worship. He's the content of our worship. Jesus is the passion of our worship. Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21 says, Paul's in prison and he writes these words, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. From a prison, he wrote those words. What excites you about, about leading a group of people to worship God in song? What most excites you? us, put myself in this. Now, there's a number of possibilities. You know, being used by God to bless people. That's really encouraging. It's really amazing that, you know, God would use us. I mean, look around. We're, we're just nothing like extraordinary. We're just like us. I mean, but he uses us. It's amazing. A great arrangement that actually works. That's exciting. Much more exciting than an arrangement that doesn't work. I've had both experiences. The joy of working in community with a team, you know, just fellowshipping and growing together. Hearing people sing a song that you wrote, that's exciting. That can, that can be very encouraging. The experience of being overwhelmed by God's presence, that's, that's amazing. Those are all good things. But they're all surpassed by glorying in Jesus Christ. And Paul says we're, we're to do it by life or by death, by life and death. So in life, how, how do we, how is Jesus the passion of our worship in life? Well, how would you finish this sentence? My life is 
with a, with a noun. <laughs> my life is music. My life is sports. My life is my wife. My life is my career. I, I, I don't know how you might finish it. I've been a musician for a long time, 35 years. Majored in piano performance in college. I have over 80 days of music on my iTunes. I, know, I don't think I'll ever listen to that many, that, that much. But music isn't my life. Jesus is my life. And how do I know that? Because Colossians 3 says this, verses 3 and 4. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is my life. He is my life. He's already my life. So, so do, do we think we have something more? Do we think we have something better? Do we have something more fulfilling, something more amazing to offer people than Jesus Christ? More frequently, I find myself saying, when, when someone asks me, well, you know, I talk, when we talk about leading God's people in corporate worship, I say, you know what, we just, this is all we got. We got the gospel. We have the word of God empowered by the spirit. That's what we got. And if you think you have something else, you're deluded. You have something better, you're deluded. What we have is Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So why would we be fearful as we're getting ready to lead? Why would we be anxious? Why would we be battling anxiety? We have the greatest news in the world. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to set his people free. From, from God's wrath, from their sin, from hell, from death. That is great news. So we want people to get that. Jim Elliott was a, you probably know who that is, a missionary from the first part of the 20th century who was brutally murdered when he was 28 years old by the Alca Indians of Ecuador as he and four others were attempting to share the gospel with them. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What we have in Christ, we cannot lose. Let's give up the foolish pursuit of trying to find something better or trying to offer people something better. We have nothing better. So that's whether we're standing in front of people or whether we're just living our daily lives. We want to see Jesus honored. And we want to see him honored in death in our death. C.S. Lewis in Reflections on the Psalm said, if it were possible for a created soul fully, I mean up to the full measure conceivable in a finite being, to appreciate, that is to love and delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme bliss. Do you follow that? If it were possible for us to fully appreciate the most worthy object and be able to give an expression to what we are experiencing, that would be the utmost happiness and joy. And that would be heaven. The greatest, the most transcendent, most powerful experience we have here are just 
a whisper of what awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. What we do here is the smallest, weakest, time-constrained foretaste of what is yet to come. We haven't experienced it yet, and, and, and we won't in this life. But one day, if we have trusted in the finished work of Christ, we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb And we will feast forever with the one who came to shed his blood for us. And it will go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And we'll never get bored. We'll never get distracted. We'll never get tired. We'll never think, is this all there is? Because we'll be looking at Jesus Christ. That's what we're preparing for here. That's what we want a taste of here, which is, which is why at the heart of biblical worship is Jesus Christ. Worshiping him is what we were created for. It's what we want to lead others to long for. And it's what, by God's grace, we will continue to grow in our love for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've put eternity into the hearts of men. And yet in our finiteness, we struggle understanding what that means. We have a hard time picturing what it's like to be in your presence and it never getting old. We who can hardly spend 10 seconds on, on the web without needing to go somewhere else. Jesus, thank you that you are infinitely glorious. Eternity won't exhaust your praise. And you have come, you came to, to purchase a people for your Father's glory and for our joy. We pray that as we gather, as we sing songs, as we hear your word proclaimed, as, as we fellowship, as we serve, as we work, as we raise our families, as we relate to friends, as we go to school, our jobs, that you would be honored in our lives. And we ask too that you'd make us willing to die for you. What a great privilege that would be. 
We thank you for this time and ask you to seal your truth in our hearts. Amen.